Well, it is just a tremendous pleasure to be here, and uh, that's a true story. I don't, I, uh, I don't know if all pastors tell all true stories. My, my mother uh, goes to our church, and so I have to tell all true stories. Um, and my wife goes, of course, as well. Once your wife and your mother are in the church, you're a lot less funny, um, but you're a lot more true. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you, that's a, that's a true story. On, uh, on Thursday morning in our, in our prayer group, we, uh, we gather together, and uh, we, have, uh, we have eight prayer groups throughout the week, and the one on Thursday morning is uh, it's at 7, too. So I think prayers at 7 count for extra. <laughs> And, uh, and we, we, we pray for all our mission partners, and, uh, and we pray for this, this church on a weekly basis. We pray for the vision that God has given you to reach this city. And uh, so I hope, I'm, I'm glad that that encourages you, and I'm glad that she made contact and that you'll have the chance to, to meet her. She's a wonderful young lady. Well, it's a, it's a great privilege to be here. Let me add my voice uh, to Pastor Stephen's voice as he wished all the dads in the room a happy Father's Day. Uh, I am... Uh, I am a person who's benefited a great deal from a godly dad. I, uh, whoa, gee, I'm not getting emotional. What's this? <laughs> Sorry, cut that out. But uh, my dad, my mom and dad became Christians when I was a little kid. And so I had the tremendous privilege of growing up in a home where people were finding Jesus. It was just remarkable. And I'm sure there's some great value too in being a third or fifth or eighth generation Christian family. But there's some real value in being a first-generation Christian family. And uh, I watched my mom and dad figure out Jesus. And in particular, I watched it change my dad. I'm going to stop talking about that. Um, but uh, I would just say dads in the room, uh, understand what a witness it is when, when your kids see a change out of the power of the gospel. Anyway, uh, it is great for me to be here. I'm very thankful to be here. And uh, I would also just like to say I'm a big fan of, uh, of your pastor, I, I love his passion for the gospel. I love his, his conviction and his courage. And I'll tell you another thing that I like. I like his ambition, um, godly ambition. It's something we don't see a lot of today, just a desire. I, do you remember in the Old Testament, uh, it, was, it was Caleb who was just like, give me that mountain, right? And uh, I, I love godly ambition, and, and I love seeing that in Brother Stephen. But uh, more than that, uh, I love hearing how he loves his wife and his family and his church. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how called you are. I don't want to listen to you unless you love your wife, uh, you love your family, and you love your church. And, uh, and your pastor does. And so I enjoy listening to him. He's a brother and a comrade in arms, and uh, it's a great privilege to stand in his pulpit today and to address brothers and sisters that I know are well-loved and well-taught. So thanks for having me. Love for you to open your Bibles today to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I have no idea what page that is on in your Bible. I think it's on page 839 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps you at all. Uh, but we're going to read Mark chapter 4, uh, verse 35 and following. And I'll be reading from the ESV translation. I hope that's not too foreign to you. Uh, generally speaking, you know, preaching is not rocket science. I don't know whether Pastor Stephen wants you to know that or not, but it's not rocket science. Uh, by and large, the task of preaching is threefold. You read the text, you explain the text, and then you apply the text. It's about as complicated as washing your hair, isn't it? Lather, rinse, repeat as necessary. That's preaching in a nutshell. 
Uh, most of the time, you go to seminary for three years just so you can find a wife as well after they <laughs> teach you that. Uh, they teach you how to preach in the first day. It's not rocket science. Uh, but you don't necessarily do all those three things in the same order and with the same emphasis in every sermon. A lot of sermons, you spend most of your time explaining the text because the Bible was written a long time ago. Uh, you know, so some of what we read was written 2,000 years ago. Some of what we read was written 3,000 or even more years ago. And so there's a lot of cultural distance that has to be spanned. You have to help people understand cultural idioms, nuances of language, and, 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 and that takes a lot of the time. And then quite often, once you've helped people understand the text, the application is very clear, right? I mean, to be honest with you, the application for 90% of sermons is one of two things. You, you know, oftentimes the application for a sermon is, stop sinning. Sin is bad. It will hurt you. It will hurt your kids. It will hurt your neighbors, and it will rob God of glory. So stop it. Uh, right? That's, you know, that's 50 or 60% of what, you know, where sermons should land. And then, of course, uh, the other great application for Christian preaching is trust in Jesus. Jesus is wonderful, and he's everything that you need. That's the application. Between those two, that's the application for 90% of sermons. But, but every once in a while, it's the opposite. Every once in a while, you meet a text that isn't really complicated at all. The meaning is very clear. But the implications are past finding out. They're a lifetime in, in working out. And, and so it is here. The story that we're going to read this morning is one of the most beloved sermons, or one of the most beloved messages or stories, I should say, in, in all of Christendom. It's not terribly hard to understand, but the implications are literally past finding out. They touch upon some of the deepest and, and most important aspects of the human life. So let's begin reading at verse 35. The text says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. Let me just explain that little phrase, just as he was. If, if you go back in context to the beginning of Mark 4, you see that Jesus had been teaching in a boat. He'd been teaching all day. So he was tired. If, if you know your pastor personally, you probably know he, he's a wreck on Sunday afternoon. I preach twice most Sundays because we've, we've got our main campus and we've got another campus. And on the Sundays when I preach twice, I'm a disaster on Sunday afternoon. I just go home and I usually see the first inning of the baseball game and then I'm unconscious until about four o'clock and I, and I wake up to find out whether they won or lost. And, and that's the, the, the life of a pastor. And, that, and that's what you're seeing here. Jesus has been preaching all day. And so he gets in the boat and he falls asleep. And other boats with him, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind 
and the sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said, and I'm sure as you can see for yourself, that's not a terribly complicated story. There's not a lot of cultural distance to gap there. In fact, it, it might be true that in Newfoundland, there's less culture to gap uh, than there might be in central Canada. Uh, this is a story about storms and seas, and I'm sure you have a little more familiarity with that than most Canadians. And if you have any familiarity at all with the Old Testament, you can probably spot the Old Testament imagery that is carried forward here, carried forward intentionally, claimed and carried forward by Christ in this story. Most commentators agree that there are three main Old Testament passages that lie behind the meaning of this text. There is, first of all, the creation account in Genesis 1-2. There is, secondly, the story of Jonah, which you probably learned as a kid. And then there's the great hymn of the redeemed from Psalm 107. Now, in the creation account, God exercises his creative sovereignty over the cosmos through the spoken word. Uh, if, if you've ever heard Genesis 1 read in Hebrew, one phrase sticks out above all the others, and it's the phrase, Vayomer Elohim. I remember when I was uh, working on Hebrew in seminary, I, uh, I had Genesis 1 and 2 on my MP3 player on my BlackBerry. That tells you how long ago it was. And uh, I, used to go, I used to go jogging through the woods, reciting out loud as it played in my ear, Genesis 1 and 2. <clears throat> I discovered that maybe running through the woods at night muttering in Hebrew is a great way to get shot. Uh, so I, I stopped doing that. But I, I still remember the prominence of that phrase, Vayomer Elohim, then God said. It's everywhere. Genesis 1-3, and God said, then God said, Vayomer Elohim, let there be light. Listen, and there was light. Genesis 1-9, and God said, Vayomer Elohim, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. It goes on and on and on. Now, theologians refer to that as creation by divine fiat. God speaks and the cosmos, creation, responds. Now, only God can do that. Only God can do that. More than that, I would say that being able to do that is definitional to what it means to be God. Right? If you ever meet someone who thinks they're God, ask them to speak something into being. And if they can't do it, give them a smack upside the head and tell them to settle down. Right? This is definitional to being God. All you have to do is read the first chapter of your Bible to figure that out. Now, the second Old Testament story that lies behind the story we're looking at today is the story of Jonah. You probably noticed a variety of similarities there. And as I said, if you went to Sunday school, I'm not sure what it is about certain stories, but there are certain stories that are kind of like required learning in Sunday school. I think it's because they look good on a flannel graph. And, uh, and so you, you probably learned about this one. God called Jonah the prophet to go and to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. And of course, Jonah the prophet didn't want to go uh, because he knew that if he preached repentance and if the Assyrians repented, then God would be merciful because that's what God does. And then he, then he wouldn't destroy the Assyrians. And that's what Jonah wanted. Jonah hated the Assyrians. So he boarded a ship for a different place. He went in the opposite direction thinking that he could escape the command and call of God. And so, of course, God kicked up a mighty storm in the Mediterranean. And the sailors in the boat immediately recognized the divine origin of the storm. 
And they cast lots in order to determine which of them had offended God in order to bring on this storm. And of course, the lot fell for Jonah, who was asleep in the belly of the ship. Jonah confessed it was caused by his sin. The crew threw him over and the whale took him in. It was the funniest sight you ever did see to see old Jonah the prophet right off in his new submarine. I cannot tell this story without remembering the poem about it that I learned as a little child. My dear friends, just listen to me and I'll tell you a tale that's as true as can be. It's better than the story of Daniel or Ruth. And though it sounds mighty fishy, it's every bit truth. You can forget that part. That's not significant. But perhaps you remember how the crew prayed for Jonah, prayed over Jonah as they tossed him over the side of the boat. They said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the point of that story is that God is sovereign over storms and over the seas, and he may use those things as he sees fit to direct his people towards their appropriate calling. You may want to file that away for future use. Third Old Testament passage that lies behind the story we're looking at today is found in Psalm 107. Now, this one's worth turning your Bible for if you can. It's on page 507 of my Bible. I don't know if that helps you or not, uh, but it will read verses 23 to 32. And I think you'll see the connection between the two texts. So this psalm, if you're not familiar with it, is sometimes called the Song of the Redeemed or the Hymn of the Redeemed. It's about how different people in different circumstances have experienced God's power and grace. The people in view here in verses 23 to 32 are sailors, those who go out onto the sea in ships, doing business on the great water. So listen to the word of the Lord. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. You can see, you can imagine in your mind's eye, the boat going up and down. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Are you seeing that? <coughs> now, you, you, you can't miss that, all right? In the Old Testament, only God, only Yahweh is sovereign over storm and sea. It, the text says, he commanded and raised the wind. People cried out to him and he delivered them in their distress. He brought them to their de- desired haven after speaking and stilling the, sor- the storm to hush. He brings them home. They give him thanks. Are you seeing that? I mean, these men that we're looking at in Mark 4, these disciples, they would have had that psalm memorized. They would have sung that 
psalm in church, and now they're living that psalm with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And that's why Mark ends the story with these words, in the mouth of the disciples, verse 41, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Some questions are so obvious you don't have to answer them, right? The, the, the point is clear. If Jesus can do what only God can do, then who is Jesus? The answer is Jesus is God. He's, he's the God of Genesis 1 and 2. He's the God of Jonah 1, and he's the God of Psalm 107. Therefore, let us extol him in the congregation of the people. Let us praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's what this story is saying. Jesus is God. He is Lord over storm and sea. Now, of course, that's the main point in any sermon you're going to preach on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but the Gospel of Mark is the first, generally speaking, scholars agree, is this first of the Gospels that were ever written. Most scholars believe that Mark invented the genre of Gospel. That's not to say he invented the Gospel. It's to say he was the first one to write the story of Jesus in such a way as to attempt to convince people that Jesus is God. He tells us that in the first verse. And that they should worship him as their Lord and Savior. And so that's going to be your main point in, in, in any sermon. And I'm sure you saw that. Right? As, as I mentioned, this is pretty straightforward stuff. It's pretty obvious. This is bottom shelf content. Very accessible. But the implications of this particular story and this particular presentation of Christ, the implications are past finding out. Right? This is one of those, this is one of those stories in the Bible that as this story dawns on you, as you begin to understand and as you begin to meditate on the implications, you see everything else in a new light. And, and so it is here. You can see that beginning to happen in the story. The disciples have just figured out that Yahweh is in their boat. That's a pretty staggering revelation. That, that, that's something very exciting to discover. And, and it suggests some things that I want to work through with you. If, if God is in the boat with his disciples, in the person of Jesus Christ, then what in the world does that mean? First thing I, have, I think you have to see is that having God in your boat doesn't mean that there won't be any storms in your life. I, I think that's the most obvious thing you have to see. I think that's the most obvious point in the story. I don't think that's necessarily the most significant point in the story, but it's the most immediate. It's the most obvious. It certainly jumps to mind. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God come down to earth. And in the story, he is God with his disciples in the storm. That's wildly significant. In the Old Testament, there was no doubt that God was portrayed as being over the storm, that God is sovereign over it all. Think, think again about that Jonah story. The sailors knew. There was no shadow of a doubt. There was no openness theology on that boat in the Mediterranean that day. They all knew that God was sovereign over the storm. He wasn't up there in heaven, you know, wringing his hands going, what is going on with the weather down there? Perhaps I'll, inter no, no, he, he wasn't intervening. He was ordaining. Do you notice how nobody questions that? Nobody finds that complicated? They understood this, this, is, this is a storm from God. God is over it. And when the lot fell for Jonah, they called him up on the deck and they asked him what he had done. And he said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said, to them, what is this that you have done? 
For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They're all like, you idiot. You worship the God of heaven who made the sea. And you thought it might be a good idea to run away from him by getting onto our boat? What is wrong with you? Where can you go and hide from the God who made the heavens and the earth and who rules over storm and sea? What in the world were you thinking? Right? These men knew that God was sovereign over the sea. They knew he was sovereign over the storm. But here's what we learn in the New Testament. He is not just over the storm. He is in the storm. In the boat with his disciples. And that is a new thought. The God up there is the God down here. That's who Jesus is. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And, and yet, here's the thing. Having Yahweh in your boat, having God in your life, does not guarantee quiet seas. On the contrary, Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a lot to think about in your first point, isn't it? You can almost smell the, the smoke coming out of the disciples' ears as the gears begin to turn on this, right? They're putting it together. Wait a second, Yahweh is in our boat. Mind-blowing fact number one. And yet we're still going through storms. Mind-blowing fact Number two, where's my prosperity gospel, right? Where's my best life now? If I've got God in my life, how come I've still got troubles? That's not a new question, by the way. See, apparently the presence of Jesus is no guarantee of physical safety. Let that settle on you. In the world, you will have tribulation. That sounds like a promise. The, the Greek word translated as tribulation there means a variety of things. Let me read to you from the dictionary. I know that's super exciting, but I think in this case it's helpful. Here, here's what the, the word means according to Strong's Greek dictionary. It means affliction, anguish, burdens, persecution, tribulation, and trouble. That's, that's what Jesus promises you as his followers in this world. Now, how you get from that to your best life now as a bestseller in North America, I have no idea. I think you get there by not reading the Bible. I think you get there by not taking what Jesus said seriously. Because what he said is, in this world you will have affliction, anguish, burdens, persecution, tribulation, trouble. So how in the world does this work? Now, we don't get the whole answer in this story, but one thing we can say for sure is that when the storms come, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care, right? That's, that's the second implication in the story, if you're connecting the dots. God is with us, yet we have tribulation, we have trouble. The disciples are having a hard time understanding that, and, and so they jump to the next dot, or what they think is the next dot. They wake up Jesus, and they ask him, teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. Isn't that interesting that that's where they go? Obviously, they've got a little bit of prosperity gospel going on as well, right? Obviously, their assumption is if God is here with us, then things should be going much better than they are. 
And, and so they default, you know, it was interesting. Somebody was talking about maybe God doesn't like me. Is that what's going on? What's going on? Things aren't going the way we thought. Maybe God doesn't care. By the way, interesting to note where their mind doesn't go. Their mind doesn't default to asking maybe if God's not sovereign, which is interesting because that's that, there's kind of two ditches. When you lose the road on this, there's kind of two ditches you can end up in. One is the, if you're inclined to prosperity gospel theology, you could say, well, maybe God just doesn't like me. Because if he did like me, I'm sure I'd be richer and healthier and happier than I am. But the other ditch you can fall into is the ditch where you start actually thinking, maybe God's not in charge. Maybe God's not sovereign. You know, maybe, he, maybe there's a good God up in the heavens wringing his hand, and he just can't believe how many bad things the devil has managed to work into your life. But of course, that doesn't square with the scriptures either. It's just interesting to notice nobody goes there in this story. None of them question the sovereignty of God. They all know God is powerful. But when trouble came, they did wonder whether he cared. Let's just put on the table that suffering is hard to get your head around as a believer. Is it not? It is. If God is loving and powerful, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And that is, that's one of the big questions. That's one of the, the big wrestles. It's one of the major questions in, in almost every religion and every philosophical system. And the Bible doesn't provide all of the answers that you might like or that I might like to that question, but it does say a great deal. The Bible leaves some mystery there, but the Bible says many very important things about why there is trouble and tribulation in a world over which God is sovereign and good. Now, the first reason is perhaps the most important, and it is certainly the most far-reaching, and it is the problem of sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to futility. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul says that the whole creation is groaning. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to. Well, if you read your Bible, you discover that the world was created with human beings who were supposed to be under God and over everything else, right? <clears throat> just this morning in our, I don't know if you do the RMM Bible readings here, but uh, just this morning in one of our RMM Bible readings, it spoke about how the heavens belong to God alone, but the earth was made for man. When was the last time you thought about that? The, the earth was made for our stewardship and the exercise of our dominion, for the exercise of our leadership. The Bible makes it very clear. There is a connection between the earth and human beings. Do you know that the Hebrew word for, for earth or dirt is Adama, and the Hebrew word for humanity is Adam. Adam, Adama. You don't have to have been to seminary to spot that connection. It literally means <clears throat> man from the dirt, man from the earth. There's an organic connection between humanity and the planet Earth. And, and so what happens to the planet Earth when humanity falls away from its source of life and blessing? Bad things, the Apostle Paul says. Very, very bad things. It's like the world system now. It's like the, the Earth has a virus. Sometimes nature is confused or violent or extreme in ways it was not intended to be. Just a few weeks ago, we saw that in, in central Canada. I don't know if you heard about this, but we had a very confused and chaotic spring. 
we had massive amounts of rainfall at a time we don't normally get massive amounts of rainfall. It's actually pr pretty serious business. <clears throat> we had rivers that overflowed their banks. There were actually some fatalities. There was a ton of flooding. People were trying to figure out what in the world is going on. <coughs> now, of course, one of those answers has to be that all creation is groaning. There's a virus in the system. And a lot of suffering can be attributed to that reality. However, that certainly does not account for all suffering. The Bible says a great deal about this, but we can't go into all of it. But let's at least take a look at a couple of verses from the book of Job, which is, of course, a treasure trove on suffering. In chapter 37, we read this. He, speaking about God, loads the thick cloud with moisture. Right? So where does rain come from? You know, one answer has got to be it comes from God. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn round and round by his guidance. What does that sound like? Sounds like hurricanes and tornadoes, doesn't it? To accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Now we get into some answers. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. See that? God might send a storm for correction. Or it might be for the land. Right? I mean, some storms are necessary. Some storms pick up minerals out of the sea and dump them on the earth, on the land, in order to make that land arable. Some storms actually remove heat out of the water to keep the temperature of the world at a reasonable level. That's how hurricanes function. There are some parts of the world that depend entirely upon the water deposited by monsoons. I do a fair bit of mission work in India. And in India, there are entire regions that do all of their agriculture from the water deposited by monsoons. They don't have any natural groundwater. And they have huge reservoirs, man-made reservoirs. They dig out these huge, basically, they look like man-made lakes. If you visit it sometimes a year, they're completely empty. And if you visit it other times a year, they're completely full because they have these massive monsoons that dump a year's worth of water that they then use for irrigation. So could be for, for that. Or it, it might be for love. God may have purposes of mercy in the storm. Book of Job speaks about that too, Job 36, 15. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Have you ever heard that before? He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, listen to this, and opens their ear by adversity. Do you see that? Sometimes God sends a storm, he sends tribulation and affliction to make people aware of their need for salvation. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about on a personal level. Maybe you, there's somebody in your life that you've been praying for. You've been praying that, that the Lord would bring them to salvation. They're not at all interested. They're so hard to the gospel, but you keep praying. How often does God answer that prayer? Doesn't he often answer it by shaking the world and taking something from them that they love more than God? Rattling their cage a little bit? There's a person in my life, I won't tell you who it is, but uh, there's a person in my life that I, I love dearly. I've been praying for his salvation for years and years and years. Wrote him a letter a couple years ago just saying, hey, just want to let you know, I have been praying for your salvation and I have been praying specifically that God would take away from you everything that you love instead of him. Just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not connecting the dots, but since then, he's lost his idol of money, company crashed. 
hasn't seen his kids in years, marriage, gone. Now, again, I'm not connecting those dots, but I'm just saying, boy, it sure does look like God is rattling his cage. Now, of course, on a geopolitical level, sometimes we see this, we see this too. Do you remember the brief revival that happened in the days following September 11th? Remember that? Boy, I tell you, on September 12th, 2001, there were a whole lot of people in our culture freshly interested in the Lord. Freshly aware of their own mortality. Freshly aware of categories like evil. Aware of what is hidden in the human heart. Feeling unsafe, a little less secure. Tribulation is often the gateway to salvation. And it is, in that sense, a, an act of love. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we'd like to know about suffering, but it does say this. The presence of suffering and trouble, of wind and storm, in a world over which God is sovereign and good, and in which Jesus is Lord, does not prove that God doesn't care. Whatever it means, it does not mean that. And it does not mean that he's punishing you. Some of you may need to hear that. Now, of course, some storms, I want to clarify here, some storms do come because of human sin. That was the point in the story of Jonah, right? That storm came because Jonah sinned. And there are still storms that come because of God's wrath against sin and sinners. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, For the, <clears throat> for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul actually says throughout human history, throughout human history, <coughs> there are mixed displays of God's wrath, meaning they're mixed with mercy and grace. They're never full. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation and it starts talking about the unmixed, the uncut cup of God's wrath, all throughout human history until the very end, God's wrath is mixed with mercy. Thanks be to God. But it's, but it's still being poured out. It's still coming out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God has a settled antagonism towards sin. That's a deadly reality. And that's not just Old Testament. One time in the New Testament, Jesus was asked about a particular catastrophe that had occurred that had resulted in the deaths of multiple people. Listen to what Jesus said in those red letters in your Bible. He said, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says, if you are persisting in sin, you are asking for the wrath of God. You are summoning it into your life. That's what Jesus says. So some storms are summoned by human sin. There's no way around that. But here is the thing. Here's what I want you to understand. If you are in Christ through faith, then that can't be the reason for the storms in your life. Because the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God towards your sin. He has paid the price. And you will never face the wrath of God in this life or the next. Thanks be to God. So, that is not what is going on with your storm. Your storm is not like the Jonah storm. It's like the Jesus storm. Do you understand that? If you have cancer, it is not that God 
is punishing you. Not if you're in Christ. That cannot be it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can cross that right off your list. So what does that leave on the list? Well, let's go back to the book of Job. book of Job said that God stirs up storms to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for His land or for love. He causes it to happen. So your storm might be for correction. You might have a wrong attitude or an idol in your life that this storm has been sent to rattle and to break down. Could be for correction. It could be for the land. Meaning it, it could just be that you're sharing space on a fallen planet that is groaning under the effect of sin. Which, which means you're going to share in some of that brokenness. It's not like if a tornado gets all out of control and crashes here. It's, it's going to miss your house. We share in the suffering and the groaning of this world. So it could be that. You know, have you noticed that Christians get cancer at about the same rate as non-Christians? Have you noticed the Christian death rate? Exactly the same as the non-Christian death rates. 100%. Right? Because we were sharing in that groaning. So it could be that. Or it could be love. God could be working purposes of mercy through your suffering. He might be working purposes of salvation. Maybe for your children. I, I mentioned earlier what an impact my father's growth in Christ. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a boy, obviously, and so it, it may be that I was just more impacted by my father's change and development than by my mother, or it could have been my mother started as a better person. I'm actually probably sure that's it right there. Um, but, you know, my father's a, kind of a, an older version of me. And, and when I began to watch him change, man, that was an argument for the gospel. But you know what else is an argument for the gospel? It's pretty impressive to your kids. How mom and dad handle suffering and storm. You know, what's it say to the kids when mom and dad stop loving Jesus because dad lost his job or they had to downsize their economic expectations? What, is it, what does it say to the faith of your kids when, when mom can no longer ever smile in church because maybe she lost a child or maybe she's just got kids that, you know, have you heard that saying? This is, a, this is a saying from the world. A mom is never happier than her saddest kid. Have you ever heard that? Can I just throw something out? That should not be true in the church. And if it is true, might it not reveal an idol in your life? Now, that's not to say we can't be emotionally impacted by the ups and downs of our children. Of course we will. But, we, I mean, didn't we just... Didn't we all just say amen a minute ago when we talked about how we're trusting that, you know, the, the same God who's sovereign over the seas and the storm is sovereign over the paths that our kids take? And so can't, can't we trust the Lord for that? Didn't, did, I don't, didn't Peter say in his sermon on Pentecost that this promise is for you and your children? Okay, is, is your God big enough for you to trust him for that? And then, of course, what if your children were not saved? What if, what if that just wasn't part of how things worked out. You're honestly telling me that the face of Jesus for all eternity would not be enough for you to give thanks? And, and so, 
there are storms and they may be working purposes of love. And so when you are able to say, as Job said, in, in your house, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Isn't it possible maybe that that is actually how God wins your kids? Because that's real faith. You know, I, I, I did a funeral recently for a young couple. Uh, neither of their, interestingly, neither of their families are, are saved. His, his family... Well, his, his parents were so angry. His family was... They, they, this, this young couple lost a baby. They, um, they went to the hospital with their bags packed. You know how you go to the hospital with your, your, your baby bags packed? They got to the hospital. They were so excited. Everyone's out in the waiting room, and she gave birth to a stillborn child. Actually, that, that's not entirely true. The baby lived for about a few minutes and then died. Now, can you just imagine that? And, and can you imagine what their families who are not Christians are thinking about that. His, his family was so angry. They were lapsed Catholics. You know, there was some Catholic there, but they were not at all even churchgoers. His family was so angry. After the funeral, his uncle shook, shook my hand, and he said, when you see God, you better tell him he's done a great wrong to this family. Oh, they were so, they were so bitter. But you know what this young couple said at the funeral of their baby? They literally said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you have any idea what that will do to the hearts and minds of their family? So maybe God is working purposes of love and mercy in your storm. Could be that. Whatever it is, here's what I know. It's not to kill you. It's not to destroy you. It's not because he doesn't care. And it's not to punish you. It's for the glory of God. And it's for the good of his people. Therefore, why are you afraid? That's where the story lands. That is the final and ultimate implication in the story. If God is over the storm, and if God is in the storm with us in the person of Jesus Christ, then what is there to fear? And that's the primary takeaway of the early church from this beloved story. The first people to hear this story, we always forget to think about the original hearers. The first people to hear this story would have been Christians, likely Roman Christians, just beginning to face the fury of Nero's persecution. Most scholars believe that, that the reason Mark wrote down this gospel from Peter, these are Peter's reminiscence of Jesus. The reason Mark wrote them down, scholars say, is because Peter had been arrested and his execution was imminent. And in fact, church history reveals that Peter was crucified upside down during the early days of Nero's persecution. Do you understand that? <coughs> this gospel, this story, was written in the storm. Listen to what William Lane says about this passage. I love this. He says, very early on, this incident was understood as a sign of Jesus' saving presence in the persecution which threatened to overwhelm the church. It is not surprising that in early Christian art, the church was depicted as a boat driven upon a perilous sea. With Jesus in the midst, there was nothing to fear. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Can't you picture that in your mind's eye? The early church saw a storm coming. But this story reminded them that God was sovereign over the storm. 
And God was with them in the storm. And he would not let their little boat be overwhelmed by wind and wave. He would not let them perish. Even during the season of greatest trial and greatest tribulation, God promised to limit the storm and moderate the waves for the sake of his elect. Jesus said that. He said, for in those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Listen, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Don't you see that? God knows how much the boat can handle. And he will not allow it to perish. The boat will float. The storm will subside and God's people will remain. Because God's over the storm. And God is in the storm all the way with his people from start to finish. Therefore, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The story ends with an important challenge. Fear is the opposite of faith. If you have a lot of fear in your life, it probably reveals you don't have a lot of faith in your life. So let me ask you, have you still no faith? Because sometimes a storm is a warning. It reveals to us that we don't have our house in order. Just uh, yesterday, I don't know if you heard this or if it made the news here, but uh, my wife sent me pictures and texts. Uh, there was a, a minor uh, tornado that went through our little town. Our little town is, uh, our city there is between two large bodies of water, the Georgian Bay area and Lake Simcoe. And so just with the way the wind patterns work in the summer, we, we get the odd tornado. And the first tornado is always very helpful, particularly if it's not very severe. And this one wasn't. Because it's a reminder, right? It's a reminder to have a little stock of bottled water down in the basement. It's a good idea. Make sure you have some matches and some batteries and some candles, right? It's a reminder. It motivates you to prepare for the next storm, for the big storm. So are you motivated? That's the question. Are you ready to come inside now? Are you ready to come on board the ship of Christ? Because if you are in Him, and if He is with you and for you, then you are already saved, right? What can man do to you now? What can terrorists do to you now? What can cancer do to you now? What can death do to you now? <clears throat> Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in Christ through the storm is our victory over the world. So come on in and hold on tight to Christ because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are God in the heavens. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. But Lord, we cannot help putting the greatest emphasis in our praise and thanksgiving on the fact that you are also Emmanuel, God with us. Oh Lord God, we would not want to live in a world 
without the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. And we could not live in this world without the grace and the help that you give us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, that you would use these storms for whatever reason you would ordain them, that you would through them sanctify us, that you would through them open our ears. As the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that, that in our storms, you would so comfort us with the comfort that is found in Christ that we would then be equipped to comfort others with that same comfort with which we have been comforted. Lord God, use these storms to sanctify us and to prepare us to serve and to shine for the glory of God and the good of all people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.